suburbs. Maybe that's not you. But I would suggest that even if that's not you, you are looking for a place to call your own. I mean, I would argue that even, even the, the millennial nomad hipster wants a place to call his own, right? That person needs somewhere to call her own. That, that, that person needs somewhere to, to lay her head at after a long trip exploring Europe or whatever globetrotting hipsters do, right? It, it may not be the, the white picket fence, but... Everyone wants a place to call their own. Maybe it's the flat in a desirable city, right? I have a room I rent out in Queens or something. It's that idea that we want a place of permanence. We want to be able to say, I'm going home. That's what we want, right? The thought of living a transient lifestyle can actually cause headaches, Right? We, we, we're tired of moving. We're, we're tired of the consistent transition. We're, we're tri- tired of things not being permanent. Well, tonight we get to read about the fact that the church has a citizenship on Mount Zion. And this isn't just any citizenship. This is an eternal citizenship. Here we read about a kingdom that we all get to be a part of that is permanent. This kingdom will never end and it will not be shaken. This kingdom is here to stay and if you are in Christ, you get to say, this is my home. I have a permanent dwelling place reserved for me at the right hand of God. Now before we turn to our passage, I want to remind us of where we have been throughout the book of Hebrews. Remember, we've seen that the author keeps going back and forth between beautiful promises on the one hand and these stark warnings. And after providing a depiction of what Christ has has accomplished for the church, then the author will turn and remind the church not to abandon Christ. Hebrews will will highlight the fact that Jesus is better than Moses and then remind the church, don't forsake Christ and return to the law of Moses. Right After explaining that Jesus provides a better sacrifice and is the better high priest of a better covenant, he reminds the church how futile and detrimental it would be to return to the former sacrifices that were performed by the former priests under the worse, lesser covenant. And as we come to chapter 12, we find one of the most glorious promises in all of Scripture and in all of Hebrews, but it's followed by warnings. Here we find the promise that we have an eternal, unshakable home in the presence of of God, And yet if we do not call that place our home, if we do not find our residence in that home, we will find that all things will be lost. So we're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. And we're going to go from verse 18 to the end of the chapter. So let's begin in verse 18. And here we see that we have not come to Mount Sinai, but we have come to Zion. Here we have a comparison to, between two different mountains, 
right? And that, that kind of seems odd at first, right? Why, why is he comparing these mountains? What kind of comparison are we talking about here? Are we talking about beauty, right? We're used to comparing mountains in, in regards to beauty, right? Is, is, are the Rocky Mountain, uh, is the Rocky Mountain Range uh, more beautiful than the Sierra Nevadas? Right? We're also used to comparing mountains in regards to how dangerous it is to climb them, right? Is it more dangerous to climb Mount Everest or its neighbor K2? This comparison, though, isn't that sort of comparison. Here, we're not talking about which mountain is more beautiful. We're not talking about which one is more dangerous to climb, although, in a sense, that is sort of related to what we are talking about. You see, here, we are comparing Mount Sinai with Mount Zion, and these two mountains are not being compared in a literal sense. This is a comparison between two spiritual realities. The spiritual realities related to Mount Sinai and the spiritual realities related to Zion. So let's begin in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You know, the most famous story in the Old Testament is probably the story of the Exodus. It's the moment when God led his chosen people, Israel, out of the kingdom of Egypt into the land of Canaan under the leadership of Moses. Right? This is a famous story specifically because of all the miraculous events and the fact that God chose to show his power through these events. Remember, God sent plagues on the nation of Egypt and he powerfully and miraculously delivered his people through the Red Sea by parting it and seeing that his people go through safely and escape their enemies. Yet the exodus out of Egypt is not actually the end of this breathtaking narrative. The story of God's power actually continues. After Israel came out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, God led them shortly thereafter to Mount Sinai. And Hebrews now is focusing on the, the power that God portrayed when the people of Israel came to the foot of that mountain. Right when, when the Israelites came to Sinai, they found a blazing fire, they found darkness and gloom, there were strong winds, there was a trumpet sound, and the voice of the Lord was going out. And it was such a terrifying scene that the Israelites wanted nothing to do with it. Well, what's happening here is actually a, a summary of what we find in Exodus 19. So I want to actually spend a moment in Exodus 19. So keep a finger in Hebrews, but if you have your Bible, turn to Exodus 19. In verse 16, we, we begin to see an explanation of the the terror that this event on Mount Sinai actually invoked. So look at chapter 19 of Exodus. 
And we're going to begin in verse 16. Verse 16. On the, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the, in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. As God descended on Mount Sinai, clearly it was a terrifying scene. When God descended, the entire weather pattern changed. When God decided to engage Earth's atmosphere, there was thunder, there was lightning, there was even the sound of trumpets going out. We read that when God descended, he came down with a trail of fire. The entire mountain was set ablaze. And as God was residing on the top of this mountain, it appeared as though there was a kiln pouring forth clouds of smoke into the sky. Later in verse 18, as we read, when God arrived on the mountain, it prompted an earthquake. It's as though the mountain was violently trembling under the the weighty and immense presence of God. God's dissension on Mount Sinai was accompanied by what could be seen, what could be heard, what could be felt. There was fire, there were trumpets, there was an earthquake. All of the senses were engaged when this took place. But notice, Hebrews doesn't stop there by just reflecting on what could be seen or heard or touched. He focuses on the fact that the people of Israel were provoked to fear because the severe warning that God gave Israel at Sinai. It wasn't merely the fire and the smoke and the wind and the lightning and the earthquake that prompted fear. It was the fact that God gave the Israelites such severe warnings when this took place. Look back at Exodus 19. We're actually going to jump up to verse 9. Uh, you can see there's a paragraph break right in the middle of the verse. So we'll be beginning where it says, When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, this is verse 10, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and then let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch it. That's the person who touched the mountain. But he shall be stoned or shot. Whether a beast or a man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the edge of the mountain. I mean, notice what we see here. It's not just the fact that this was a a horrifying and terrible thing to see. That's not what was provoking fear in them. 
necessarily, although it was, but there was more to it. In Hebrews, in, in back in Hebrews 12, he reflects on the fact that the warning that said, if anything touches this mountain, that thing needs to be put to death, that was also prompting fear in the Israelites. No one could even touch the mountain. And if you touched the mountain, you were stoned for it. Even if an animal, right? An animal, an amoral animal who doesn't know any better, even if that animal touches the mountain, you need to put it to death. And when God came down on Mount Sinai, what, what's going on here? God is giving his covenant to the nation of Israel. So this is the context of the Mosaic covenant. This is when God established his covenant with Israel through Moses. And think about this. This is the covenant that the Israelites were being tempted to return to. They wanted to go back to the Mosaic covenant. They wanted to leave Zion and go back to Sinai. Yet notice that the people of Israel in the, at Mount Sinai, they were prevented from entering into the presence of God. They could not even touch the mountain, let alone ascend it with Moses into God's presence. So we have to ask the question, why then is Hebrews bringing all of this up? Why is he bringing to mind this terrifying scene? Why is he comparing these two mountains? Well, we need to keep reading in order to see that. Let's keep going. We're back in Hebrews 12, 22. Verse 22, here's what we read. But you, you have not come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Through Christ, we have left Sinai and shown up at the foot of Mount Zion. I mean, after reading this section, it becomes clear why the author of Hebrews is comparing these two mountains. Remember, everything we said about Mount Sinai was terrifying. And then we concluded the people of Israel weren't allowed to enter into the presence of God. They weren't even allowed to touch the mountain. If they touched it, they would be stoned. But here at Mount Zion, we find a profound contrast. When we arrive at this mountain, we get to enter into the presence of God. Every single one of these things that we come to, right? There's this long list of things that we come to. This long list, every detail of it is a long explanation of the fact that at Zion, we come into the presence of God. We don't have to stand at the foot of this mountain looking up at this terrible sight. We enter God's presence. So look at this long, detailed explanation. We're going to hit on every one of them because every one of these details is important. First, he says, you have come to Mount Zion. This is one of the author of Hebrews' favorite words. You have come. And he uses this word 
specifically when he's explaining the benefits that we have in Jesus Christ. Right In chapter 4, verse 16, he uses this word when he says, Let us then with confidence draw near or come to the throne of grace. Because of what Christ has done, we can approach God now. We can come to God and find grace. Chapter 7, verse 25, he uses the word again. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. If you come to God through Christ, you can come with confidence. Chapter 10, verse 22, we read this. Let us draw near. In other words, let us come to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Because of what Christ has done, we can now come to God on Mount Zion. Look how he explains Mount Zion. He says it is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. While we were prevented from even touching Mount Sinai, we get to enter into God's city. We are members of this city. We are citizens of this city. We get to come to the heavenly city of Jerusalem through Christ. We see also here that when we come to Zion, Now, this seems odd at first, right? We get to come to this innumerable angels in festal gathering. Okay, what's so significant about that? This is actually extremely important. Think about when we read, especially throughout the Old Testament, who dwells in the presence of God. When God is sitting on his throne, who's surrounding God? It's the angels gathered around him. So whether it's Isaiah 6 where Isaiah is looking at the throne room of God and the angels are circling God, singing out praises to him. Or whether we're reading Ezekiel 1 when God descends onto the earth and thrones on the angels. The, The angels are carrying him down to the earth. Or if we're reading about Revelation 4 where the angels of God are surrounding him, singing his praises. When we read that we get to come to the festal gathering of angels, what he is getting at is we get to come into the presence of God. Again, we don't have to stand at the foot of Mount Sinai, unable to even touch it. We get to come right into the very presence of God. We also get to come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Another word for assembly here is the church. You know, in ancient cultures, the firstborn was given the father's blessings. The firstborn was the one who received the father's inheritance. And let me remind you, in Colossians 1, we read that Jesus is explained to be the firstborn of the father. Christ has all the rights of heaven at his disposal. But here we read that the entire church is called the firstborn. So which is it? Well, remember, as the church, we are united to Christ. So all the benefits that Christ has as the firstborn son of God are ours. We have rights to the throne room. We have rights to the kingdom of God. Our names as the firstborn children of God are written in the heavenly places. 
the entire church will one day enter into God's presence with the rights of the firstborn son. You and I get firstborn status. And when that happens, we get unhindered, unqualified access to God's right hand through Christ. Next, we read that we have come to God. And then he qualifies it. Not just God, but the judge of all. So in Jesus, think about this, we get to approach the judge of all without any fear or hesitation, even though the God of all, who who knows all things, knows every thought and intention of our hearts. Yet we get to come to him without fear, without hesitation. We come to him with confidence. Unlike the Israelites who could not even touch Mount Sinai because they were not fit to do so, we get to enter directly into the presence of the judge. And we come to this judge with confidence because the next thing in this list, we come to the spirits of righteousness who have been perfected. Right? There's no fear in the presence of the judge when you have been made righteous and perfect. So we come to the judge in perfection. Now in this long list, next we come to the fact that, that we come to Jesus. We come to Jesus who has, who has given us this perfected spirit. He's the one who grants us access to the presence of God. Why? Because he is the mediator of a new covenant. As we read about in verses, in chapter essentially 6 through 10, we read about the new covenant. The fact that we have forgiveness of sins in Christ and now we get to come to God with confidence. Now at the very end of verse 24, we read the way the new covenant came about. We come to Mount Zion, the city of God, where there is a festival gathering of angels, to the assembly of the firstborn, to the judge of all, to Jesus. Because we have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And this blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So Abel, remember, he was the first name mentioned at the beginning of chapter 11 in the long list of saints. Why is Abel significant? Because he was the first murder. Jesus is also murdered as the son of God. But in a real sense, he also is the inauguration to this day when murder will no longer exist. Of course, Christ's Blood speaks a better word than Abel's because unlike Abel's blood, when it was poured out, it just spoke to the fact that, yes, man's heart is wicked, just like Genesis 3 predicted. With Christ, when his blood is poured out, out, now we know we have access to God. We have access to this eternal kingdom where there will be no murder, where there will be no pain, where there will be no hurt. Through Christ, we have access to Mount Zion. And we don't have to stand in fear and intrepidation at Mount Sinai anymore. Instead, we get to approach God with confidence. Therefore, as we read in verses 25 through 27, we should not reject the one who is speaking 
we should not reject this final word that comes from God. Remember, Hebrews goes back and forth between promises and warnings. Because we have access to God on Mount Zion through Jesus, let us not neglect this final word from Christ. Look what we read here in verses 25 through 27. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, that is the Israelites, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. You know, with greater revelation comes greater responsibility. When our understanding of some truth begins to rise... With that, our moral imperatives also rise. We've seen this throughout the book of Hebrews. The more we know about God's plan of redemption, the more accountable the author of Hebrews seems to hold us to. And let me point out this is actually true in all areas of life. Think about for a moment the fact that as a society we have grown in technological advancements in in remarkable ways. Think of the ultrasound. Our society has begun to grow more and more knowledgeable about babies in the womb. I mean, if you pay a few extra dollars now, you can get a colored, high-resolution picture of your baby while it is in the mother's womb. I don't know if you knew that, but these pictures are pretty remarkable. They're, they're like detailed. It's like looking at the baby directly in color. You know, the more we know as a society, the more we come to understand that a pregnant woman has a living, living person dwelling with inside her womb the more we begin to understand that we are accountable for that life inside the mother. The more we know about that that baby, the more we are held accountable to take care of that baby as a society. I mean, we can't treat it like a ball of cells and keep calling it a fetus if we have a high-resolution picture of the baby. It's a baby, and we need to treat it as such. The more we know about something, the greater responsibility we have to act on that truth. And that's that's exactly what's happening here. God has shown more and more about himself through the course of history. And now Christ has come. And we see the great extent of God's love and compassion And this brings about a greater responsibility on our heart, on our part, which is why Hebrews is making this argument in verse 25. If the Israelites at Sinai did not have an escape from God's judgment when they abandoned God, what makes us think that we have a way of escape? 
the kindness of God has been revealed and now we are responsible to respond correctly to God's kindness. We cannot forsake Christ. Now notice here how we also see that God's judgment becomes more severe as he reveals more and more about his goodness and kindness in Jesus. Here we have this comparison, which kind of seems odd at first, but we have this comparison between the way God shook the earth at Sinai and the way that he's going to shake the earth from heaven one day. What is he getting at? Ultimately, he's pointing, pointing, pointing to the fact that all of history is waiting for the day when God will come and judge all things. At that moment, he will not only cause an earthquake as he did when he spoke from Sinai. At that moment, he will speak and the entire created order will just shatter before his voice. This is a quote directly from Haggai 2.6. Haggai is looking forward to the day when, the, when the God will come and shake the earth from heaven in a final sense. God will directly and ultimately judge from heaven. And when he does that, everything that we know in this created order will be put away with. This is actually why he, he says what he says in verse 29. He says, our God is a consuming fire. <laughs> Hear the intensity of that, that verse. Our God is a consuming fire. You know, there are worship songs that emphasize the fact that God is a consuming fire as though it's something that we want. Right? God, con come consume me with all of your fire. This isn't presented as a positive thing. This is God's judgment. Right? We have two different illustrations essentially saying the same thing. God is going to shake the entire created order to the point of oblivion. And here we see that God is going to consume all things like a fire consumes a dried up forest. Our God will consume his adversaries. He will do away with this fallen world. In that moment, the only thing that will remain is that which is unshakable, the eternal kingdom of God, the new creation. So do not forsake Christ because Zion is better than Sinai. I mean, because the consequences here associated with this better covenant are greater, we have to recognize we cannot forsake Christ. You know, to put it this way, better promises do not mean lesser consequences. I think we typically think that in the pages of Scripture. Okay, there's a better promise here. That means lesser consequences for the things that I do that are wrong. In fact, it's the exact opposite higher the promise is, the greater the judgment is, the greater the consequences are for forsaking that thing. So either you will inherit the city of God or you will be part of the judgment, the ultimate judgment of God. Now as, I wanna, as, as we move forward, I want to point out that it's easy at this point to begin to think that our motivation for following God is only fear. 
I mean, hearing what the author of Hebrews just wrote, you, you and I, we might be tempted into thinking that the author here is calling us to obey through a tactic we call fear-mongering. <laughs> right? Like, obey or suffer the consequences. I want to point out that's actually a half-truth. That's not entirely true, although it's partially the case. Hebrews does not motivate us towards obedience only by reminding us of the coming judgment. That is not the whole message of Hebrews. It's not even the primary focal point of Hebrews. The book is actually focusing on the, on the benefits of Christ. The primary purpose of the book is, is to motivate obedience by highlighting all that Christ has done. Not just pointing out the judgment that comes to those who forsake what Christ has done. And we find proof of this in verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful. Let us be thankful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Here we see that we are called to worship Christ in this unshakable kingdom and this is key, with grateful hearts. Right? The primary command here in verse 28 is to be grateful. Be thankful. Be grateful because you have been granted access to God's heavenly kingdom that will never fade away. He has brought us into his kingdom that will never be shaken. While all that we see here on this earth will be done away with, We have a permanent residence in God's presence. By God's grace, we are brought into this city. By God's kindness, we have a new passport, right? We have new citizenship. We are citizens in the everlasting kingdom. And for that, we should be eternally thankful and eternally grateful. We have permanent access to the most beautiful city, the most secure city that there is. Right? Why do so many people move out to the suburbs in the first place? It's because the cities are dangerous. There's other reasons, but that's one reason for sure. Here, we get access to the heavenly city of Jerusalem, the city of God. And because our permanent residence is this eternal, unshakable kingdom, we should be motivated to worship God, not just out of fear, but out of thankfulness, out of gratitude. We're not just motivated by fear. In reality, we are motivated by the fact that God has chosen us and granted to us his salvation from judgment. He's granted us access access to the kingdom that will not be shaken. Who is this God who freely offers salvation to those who walk in disobedience? Right? Who is our God who, who has given us eternal access? Even though we're sinners, even though we continually, constantly spite God, he has granted us a permanent home. 
And for this, we ought to be motivated by thanksgiving, by thankfulness. In reality, thankfulness and gratefulness are, are, are marks of the true Christian. You cannot go without a heart of thankfulness and a heart of gratitude if you are a Christian. It doesn't work. So let's reflect on, just for a moment, what is the difference between being motivated by fear and being motivated by thanksgiving? Right? If this is a call to be motivated by thanksgiving and not necessarily fear, what does that mean? What does that look like? Why is that significant? First off, I want to point this out. Worship does not follow when we are merely motivated by fear. If your primary motivation for obeying God is a fear of the consequences that will result from disobeying God, that will not motivate you towards worship. Obedience motivated by a fear of the consequences will not spur on by itself love and affection for God. I'm not saying that fear is inappropriate. But we must understand fear in context of the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. We should fear the consequences of sin. That is true. And we should fear the wrath of God. That is true. However, once we come to understand that through Christ we do not have to face the wrath of God, our fear in that moment transforms to thanksgiving. Think of the student who is called into the principal's office for the very first time. Think about the amount of fear that, like, probably relate with me. Happened to me more than once. But that first time, right, you go in and there's a lot of fear in your heart. There's trepidation. The intercom sounds, and the student is told to report to the principal's office, and immediately fear begins to seep in. And as you walk to the principal's office, fear and trepidation, right? Yet typically, what happens to a first offender, right, is the principal will bring that student in and explain all of the consequences that that student should face for what he or she has done. And yet then, typically, again, for the first offender, the principal offers forgiveness to the student. And in that moment, what do you feel? Thanksgiving floods your heart. You trance, you, all, all of a sudden, right, the fear just shifts to gratitude. But to a far greater degree, the same is true for those who are in Christ. Because you see, we are, we're not first-time offenders. It's not as though we are entering into the principal's office for the very first time, for the first time, for the first crime we ever committed. No, we have been provoking God's wrath on our lives Constantly, continually, day by day. And yet, instead of delivering wrath upon our heads, he grants us grace. And he does so in the most profound ways. Right? He, he sprinkles us with the blood of his son. He, he pours out the penalty of wrath that we piled up for ourselves on Christ. 
Christ suffered the punishment we deserved. And when we begin to grasp that, the fear that we have directed towards the judgment that we rightfully deserve, once we begin to grasp the gospel, our fear transforms in that moment into gratitude. When we begin to understand the immensity of God's grace, our fear goes through a metamorphosis in a way. It comes out on the other side not as fear, but as thankfulness and as praise. And this means we need to grow in our thanksgiving. So how do we do that? How is it that we, as the people of God, can grow in our thanksgiving? If that's a mark of a Christian, I want that. First, you grow in thanksgiving by meditating on what you have been saved from. And second, you grow in thanksgiving by meditating on what you have been saved for. What have you been saved from and what have you been saved for? What have you been spared of? Let's start there. If we want to grow in thanksgiving, let's let's begin to process what we have been spared from. We are saved from the judgment of God. We have been spared from the eternal wrath of God. Right? God rushes to our safety as a consuming fire was barreling down a mountainside being propelled by gale force winds. Right? It was directed directly towards us. And yet God provided us refuge. He has provided us a, a safe place as a storm was wreaking havoc and directed directly for us. When God speaks again from heaven, he is going to bring all created things to nothing. And if you are part of the church, you don't have to be, be there when that happens. You don't have to be a part of that. Instead, we're going to be rejoicing in the eternal, unshakable kingdom of God. Which leads us to consider what we have been saved for. But if we want to be growing in our thanksgiving, we need to reflect on what God has saved us for. We don't only get to escape God's judgment and and destruction. We get to enter into the eternal presence of the city of God or the eternal refuge of the city of God in, uh, in God's immediate presence. We get to enter into God's courts, into God's tent, as we read from Psalm 61. And we come there with praises on our lips. Just think for a moment. Let's do, let's do a little exercise. What is it that brings you joy in this life? Is it a beautiful sunset? Is it the view of mountains? Is it the, the sight of the ocean? Maybe you find joy in the feeling of creating fresh tracks and a fresh batch of snow while snowboarding, right? That's something I enjoy. Maybe you enjoy the feeling of swimming in warm, clear, blue ocean water. Maybe you enjoy the time that you get to spend with friends. Maybe it's the time you get to spend with family. Maybe you find joy in in sharing a meal. Maybe it's Taco Bell. Sorry, maybe it's Little Caesars. If that is it, I will judge you. Um, maybe it's authentic Brazilian barbecue. If that's you, we're soulmates, right? 
real Brazilian barbecue. That is joyful right there. Amen, brother. <laughs> I mean, do you ever realize that the pleasures of this life, all of them, they're merely a foretaste of the joy that we will experience in heaven, right? Earthly experiences, earthly joys, no matter how enjoyable they may be, are merely meant to foreshadow the eternal joys that we will experience in God's unshakable kingdom, in his everlasting kingdom. We need to be motivated by what we are saved for. Because when we begin to think about what God is saving us for, what lies ahead for the Christian, we can grow in thankfulness. We can grow in our gratitude and, and let me point out something we've heard over and over again from the book of Hebrews is that our perseverance is dependent on our thankfulness and our gratitude. If we want to persevere, we cannot expect that our perseverance is going to hinge solely on fear and trembling. It's not going to work. You need to have this motivation of thanksgiving for our God and what he has done for us. And to do that, we need to constantly remind ourselves of the joy that awaits us in the presence of God. We need to constantly remind ourselves of this this kingdom, this unshakable kingdom that is ours, where we have our permanent residence saved for us in God's presence. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for what you have done for us in the person of Christ. We are so grateful for what you have accomplished on our behalf, granting us this eternal kingdom, this unshakable kingdom where we we don't have to face the fears of judgment. Instead, we get to look forward to the joys of heaven in your presence. Lord, help us to be motivated by that thanksgiving and that gratitude. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing these last two songs. is weary when my soul is weak when it seems I can't traverse the trail before me I survey the glory of your agony and I find the will to fight for what's before me Cause you ran the race Enduring for your glory And I fix my eyes on you The founder and the finisher Of our faith And I fix my eyes on you 
solace in your suffering is my strength As I fight to follow You're my righteous guide And you train me to delight in all this holy Heal my broken body Heal my crooked stride Throw off every way and sin that clings so closely I will run the race Enduring for your glory I fix my eyes And I fix my eyes on you The founder and the finisher of our the only life I need. You died for me. You're the only life I need. You help me breathe. You're the only life I need. You died for me. You're the only life Station. I'm a child of God by grace and grace alone. You left your home, 
You left your home to seek out the lost You knew the great and terrible cost But Jesus, your face was saved And I worked my fingers down to the bone Nothing I did could ever atone But Jesus, you paid my day And by your blood I have redemption and salvation Lord, you died that I might reap what you have sown And you rose that I might be a new creation And I am born again by grace and grace alone I was in darkness all of my life I never knew the day from the night The Spirit you made me see I swore I knew the way on my own Head full of rocks, a heart made of stone The Spirit you moved in me at your touch, my sleeping spirit was awakened. Oh, my dark and heart, the light of Christ has shown. It caught into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Heaven's citizen by grace and grace alone. So I'll stand in faith by grace. great those truths are, Lord, that by your grace, you have made us sons and daughters when we were once orphans. And you have called us into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we are made citizens of heaven by your grace and your grace alone. And so I pray, God, would you give us hearts that are thankful and grateful for what you've done for us in Christ. Would we not forget that we are no longer orphans, but sons and daughters who have the rights of the firstborn. So we thank you for Jesus, Lord. We thank you for his work. I pray that you're glorified tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. Um, we'll see you guys next Tuesday. <laughs>